Well, good morning. You know, as uh, we think about Christmas, one of the things that my wife and I uh, usually have to do at our holidays, because my folks are uh, kind of a distance away, we would go on long trips, and our kids, they love to play this game, Would You Rather? My son loves playing this game, and my daughter and uh, her husband love to play this game too. And a lot of times, these questions, if you've ever played this game, you know it can be pretty embarrassing. Um, I'm not going to embarrass you today, but in thought of Christmas, let's play a Christmas Would You Rather, okay? Would you rather go on a tropical vacation alone at Christmas or be with your family in snowy, cold Chicago for Christmas? Which one would you be, one or two? All right, good. Most of you didn't say one. Be alone. And, all right, tro- well, the tropics are kind of nice. Would you rather go to someone else's house for Christmas dinner or have everyone come to your house for Christmas dinner? One or two? Not many ones on that one either. Okay. Would you rather receive 10 small presents worth $10 each for Christmas or one large present worth $100? Peter, you and I are in this, you know, two weeks before Christmas. We always got the one big present, right? Yeah. Renee, you can tell that we are not alike on this gift thing. <laughs> 10 for her, one for me. And that makes her happy, and it makes me happy, so that's good. Let me see if I can get a little more serious about this thing, would you rather. And this kind of ties into, it doesn't just kind of tie into it, it really ties in to today's message. Would you rather live a short life that is filled with difficulties, struggles, challenges, pain, but that has made a huge impact for the kingdom of God, Or would you rather live a long life filled with health and wealth and prosperity that had little impact for God? One or two? All right. I hope you guys said one. But you know what? It's painful enough to think about that. You know, a short life filled with pain and suffering. Do I really want that? Or would I rather live a long life that's kind of easy straight? You know, last week's message, Michael preached about Uh, Matthew chapter 3, where we learned about the preaching and baptizing of John the Baptist, and we learned how that John was really calling the people of the day to repentance and to identification with the Savior. Remember that? You know, that's what John's message was all about, about repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he was asking them to follow that repentance in baptism. You know, in this third week of Advent, I want us to think about, and I want to talk about realigning our hope. Because, you know, in last week's message, it was really about the hopeless and the hopeful. But today, we sometimes need our hope realigned. You know, we're going to look at the rest of what was in that passage of, of Michael's last week in, in uh, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to eventually get to that. But... Today, I want us to think about this. You know, getting our hope realigned, I don't know if many of you know this or not, but one of my other trades is mechanics. Uh, I work on cars and trucks and other things. And when your car was brand new, it came from that factory perfectly aligned. Steering wheel was straight, you let go on a normal road, and it just stayed straight. But here in Chicago, where we live with potholes, you know, most every street that we drive on, 
you know, we hit one of those potholes and pretty soon our steering wheel is not straight anymore. Sometimes if you hit a big enough pothole, you know, it breaks things or bends things or makes things, you know, where the steering wheel is not where it used to be. Have you guys experienced that before? You know, and in Chicago, it seems like, you know, you can be driving down the road, you can travel that road all the time, and then suddenly, wham, out of nowhere, there's that pothole. You know, and it wasn't there yesterday, and today it's almost as big as a Grand Canyon. And it's like, what happened here? And then there's other times you're driving on the road, you know where that pothole is. You know, that thing was there yesterday, and it was there the week before, and I can dodge it, but, you know, suddenly for some reason, you know, you forget, and then you hit that thing, you know, and it jars your teeth loose. You guys experienced this before? You know, we do live in Chicago. We do drive on these roads. We do know that our, our money is supposed to be, our t uh, toll money is supposed to go fix those roads. But they don't always do that, do they? You know, in, in life, though, we have personal potholes. You know, we have holes in the roads, but we have sometimes things that jar us, that startle us, that challenge us, that create problems for us that are personal potholes. You know, and a personal pothole, um, I'd like to define this way. It's anything that knocks us out of alignment with Jesus. We've all experienced these things. A personal pothole can be uh, any kind of financial problem. It can be some kind of physical illness. It can be a people problem. It can be a seasonal life problem. You know, where you're suddenly uprooted from a place that you've been for years and now you have to move. You know, when we hit these potholes of life, these personal potholes, you know, often we think, well, what's that all about? What did Jesus promise us? Roses and easy street after we came to accept him as our Savior? No, he didn't. He promised us pain and suffering, trials and tribulations. He even went as far as saying that at times you will be hated by your mother and brother your father and your daughter, your sister, all because of me. And we often forget those things. You know, these personal potholes can be sometimes really small. And, you know, a small pothole, you can hit that with your car, and it doesn't really affect anything. But sometimes these personal potholes are huge. I mean, they are big. They are big things. How will you respond when you hit one of these potholes? I'm not talking about the little ones. I'm talking about the big ones in life. Will you need to be realigned? If you're going through one of these personal potholes today, then I know that you're, you're going through it trusting Christ the best you can. But maybe you're here today and you know what? Life has been pretty easy for you for a while. You know, there really hasn't been any big potholes, personal potholes in your life. You know, and I know what the danger is, because I've been there. Life is going pretty smooth, God is blessing, and you're telling yourself, hey, you know, when that pothole comes in my life, when that challenge, that, that unexpected tragedy happens, me and Jesus, we'll be all right. We'll be okay. Everything's be, everything will be good. But will it? Will it? What about when you're holding your spouse because you've lost a child through miscarriage or some tragedy? Will you be all right with Jesus? 
What about when you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you the news and he drops that C word and says, you've got cancer and it doesn't look good. You going to be okay with Jesus? What about when that relationship that you thought was going to be the next best thing to heaven is falling apart? Are you going to be all right with Jesus then? Do you need to be realigned? We all face these things from time to time. And it's all in how we answer this question. Am I going to be okay when these things happen to me? Well, I'll get back to that in a minute, okay? I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to get into the text today from Matthew chapter 11. But before we do that, uh, you can turn there. I want to tell you a little about the historical setting of Matthew chapter 11. At the end of the message that Michael preached last week, at the end of the text that he read in Matthew chapter 3, we read these words from John the Baptist. Because John was baptizing, and he said to the crowd, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, you've heard of fire and brimstone preachers? Ah, that was John. John, John didn't hold any punches back. I mean, he let him have it. And he said, Jesus is going to do something greater than he's going to, that he could ever do. The Apostle John recorded this incident about Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in his, his account of the gospel in chapter 1. And he said, these, uh, we read these words. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him. You do know, if you know your uh, uh, families in the Bible, you know that Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. And he recognized Jesus coming toward him and he said... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, and he's quoting Old Testament, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. It seems pretty clear that John was certain of who Jesus was. He was more than his cousin. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one that was before him very certain of his message, very certain of who his message was about. It was about the promised Messiah. We're going to find out here that after Jesus comes on the scene and after Jesus is baptized by John, in Matthew chapter 4, the very next chapter from where the text was last week, we read in Matthew chapter 4, that John is arrested, John the Baptist is arrested and put into prison. And we don't find out why he's put into prison until chapter 14. Now, all the people that are in our story today, all those that are being uh, involved in what's happening in Matthew 11, they know why John is in prison. We don't find out till later. So let me share with you what happens later. Later in the text, I'll share with you why. John needed a realignment. And just like he needs a realignment, 
we're going to find that we sometimes need as well. Let me share with you the, the text now. In John's dilemma. What is John going on? Because he's in prison, and in chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. John's in prison. He's been in prison at least six months, maybe up to a year at this time. He's been sitting in a cold, damp prison when Jesus is now doing his ministry. Now let me tell you why he's in prison. In chapter 14 of Matthew, we read these words. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod the Tetrarch. This is the governor of the land of Judea. Head honcho. And John, John uh, and, and so he was put into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John, that's John the Baptist, had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Here's what's going on. Herod the Tetrarch divorced his wife, seduced his brother's wife, Philip, his brother's wife, and had married her. And John the Baptist had ongoingly been confronting Herod. This is probably not the way to win friends and influence politicians and say, dude, you are in sin. What you are doing is going to bring down God's judgment on your life. What you are doing, what you've done is wrong. And because of that, he's thrown into prison. Six months he's been sitting there. Six months of not knowing what has been going on on the outside. You know, he had, he had not seen or heard any of the stuff that Jesus was doing personally. You know, there was no... Uh, there was no TV that he could watch in prison like they are today. There was no iPods. There was no podcasts. There was no CD messages of Jesus. John had been sitting in prison not knowing what was going on after the baptism. He didn't have that privilege. He didn't have the privilege of opening Matthew's gospel and reading the first 10 chapters where he could read about what was going on. He'd only heard about these things. And it's possible that he heard about it from fellow prisoners, but it's probably much more likely he heard about what was going on on the outside in the ministry of Jesus from his own disciples that he had discipled that had been following Jesus and had visited him while he was in prison. And he heard about all the things that Jesus was doing. And yet he was sitting in prison. Well, listen to what John does. I love the action of John. And he sent word by his disciples and said to him, said to Jesus, you know, before I get on any further of this, I, I need to make this point. We're going to find out that John needs a realignment. And at times, we need alignment. We need to be realigned to the purpose and the call and what God is doing in our lives. And what often we do, God is doing something in our life that we don't like. And what do we do? We run to all our friends can you believe this is going on in my life? And we just sound miserable. You know, we sound like we're fussing and complaining and whining and moaning, and at times we're all guilty of it, right? And John didn't do that. John went right to the source. He said, I've got a problem with Jesus, 
and I'm going to go to him. I'm going to get answers from the source. I'm going to go right to God in prayer, and I'm going to pray, what are you doing in my life, God? This is not working out the way I thought. And this is his question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? How could John ask this question? Are you the one? You know, any good Jewish person of the day, they knew what he was asking. The one who is to come. He's asking, are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? That's what he's asking. How could he ask this question? Theologians, commentaries are all over the map on an answer to this. And I'm going to give you some options of what and why he's asking. And you're going to have to come up with your own answer because... We're not told. We're not told why he asked this question. The first one is, he is in utter disbelief. He no longer believes that Jesus is the Messiah. You think that's what it is? The guy who stood in the Jordan River and pointed, stopped the commotion, and, and pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Everyone, look. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is he now saying, I don't believe that? Maybe he's just uncertain about Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe I was wrong. Is he saying that? Maybe he's in desperation to be freed from prison. You know, he's been there for some length of time. I mean, it wasn't last week that he went into prison. I mean, he's been sitting there for quite a while. Is he in desperation? Here's what I think. I think he's confused about his current state. Wait a minute. You're the Messiah... I'm supposed to be your forerunner. I'm in prison. You're out there. What's going on? I think he's also doing this. I think he's challenging Jesus. You know, there are cousins. And there are things that family members can say to each other. There are things that close friends can say to each other and they can get in each other's face and they can challenge and, 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 and really push our buttons. You know, I would compare it to this way. You know, Let's say that there's some kind of problem going on here at Village Church. And I say to Michael Fueling, Michael, aren't you the pastor here? Are you or are you not the pastor? Are you going to deal with this or are you not going to deal with this? I think that's what John's saying to Jesus. Hey, you're the Messiah. I'm sitting here. What's going on? Not just confused. Do something about this. You're the one that's supposed to free prisoners. Why am I sitting in jail? We don't often think about talking to Jesus that way, do we? You know, one commentator said this. Now, John wasn't asking for his own benefit. He was asking for the benefit of the, his own disciples, the people that were following Jesus, the people that were wondering, eh, you know, uh, John, the forerunner, he's sitting in prison. Help us here understand Jesus, because John does say, should we look for another? I told you what I think. You'll have to come up with your own understanding of what he's asking and why he's asking it. Nevertheless, whatever reason he's asking, he needs to be realigned, doesn't he? You know, this same question, are you the Christ, should we look for another, is a question that each and every one that lives on this planet have to ask. We have to ask, is Jesus the promised Messiah, isn't he? You know, we have a huge opportunity as we think about Christmas and Advent this time of year. 
you know, is this baby that was born in the manger, is he the Christ? Is he the Savior of the world, or is he not? You know, we have a unique opportunity at Christmas to evangelize, to ask that question. Is the baby Jesus the promised Savior of the world? And if so, have you trusted him? You know, many people think that Christmas, that Advent, is all about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Uh, that is scriptural, right? That is what this season is supposed to be about. But here's the truth. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, can't happen out there. It cannot happen worldwide. It cannot happen in America. It cannot happen in our own community until it begins with peace in here. Right? And we only get peace in here when we trust Christ as our Savior. Right? It has to begin here first. One of my hobbies is history. I love historical characters, historical people. There was a 17th century mathematician, philosopher, and physicist. His name was Blaise Pascal. And I love the way this guy thinks. He's credited with inventing the first calculator. But he was a Christian, and, he, and he, he is credited with something called the Pascal Wager. And I use this from time to time when I speak to someone that doubts whether God exists or not. Pascal's wager is this. Every human being is betting with their very life, their eternal soul, whether God exists or whether he doesn't. That is Pascal's wager. And you think about that. Every human being is betting with their eternal soul whether God exists or he doesn't. Pascal went on to say this. If he doesn't and we bet that he did, we're not, we're not going to lose anything. But if we bet that he does not exist and we find out in eternity he does, we're in trouble. Right? We are betting with our eternal soul. Therefore, let's carry that thought out a little bit further. Every person has to ultimately answer three questions. The first one is, do I believe that Jesus of the Bible is the Savior? Is the Savior the promised Messiah, or do I not? And your answer to that, everyone's answer to that, will determine their eternal destiny. That's a pretty big bet, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's not just a million-dollar bet. That's an eternal bet. If Jesus is the promised Messiah and I don't trust him, I lose eternity and I gain eternal punishment. Boy, that's a pretty big wager. For the Christian who says, you know what, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. I, I bet my life that he exists. He is the Savior. He is the one who died to forgive my sins. I, I, I accept that. We have a second question. Is he Lord of my life? Is that Jesus Lord of my life? Is he the one that I get permission to direct my life or not? We have to answer that question. And our eternal and, and, and right now hope is going to be determined whether I trust him today for the things that happen in my life or do I not. If I make him Lord... I say he's in charge. You know, he's not the co-pilot. He's the pilot of my life. And then there's one more question. 
if he is my Savior and if he is my Lord, and I've wagered my life and everything that I have on those two answers, what is that going to look like for me? Because it will likely look different for you than it will for me. Let's look at what John's pothole is. His personal pothole is a pretty big one. He had done exactly what God had told him to do. He had been exactly what God had told him to be. He was obedient, and yet he's in prison. That's not a pretty good, that, that, that's not a good trade-off, is it? I, you obey God, you do what he says, you become what he wants you to become, and you end up in prison and ultimately dead? John's looking at his circumstances, and he's saying, this is not the way it's supposed to have worked out, right? Has anyone else been there in life? You serve God faithfully, you do what he says, you're obedient, and you find yourself in a personal pothole, and you say, I didn't think it was supposed to be this way, Jesus. Am I just confessing my own sin and doubt, or am I talking to any of you? Have you been there? John had expected things to be different. He expected things to turn out differently. Remember what I asked? What about this promise about the Messiah frees prisoners? Why isn't that working out for me, John asked. Well, and then ultimately dying. Being beheaded because he was exactly what God had asked him to be and do. Wow, it's a pretty big pothole. Some of us are going to face potholes like that. Some of us have already faced potholes like this. John needed a realignment. He needed Jesus to realign him because he's out of alignment. His steering wheel is sideways, and he's sideways. Would you all agree? Listen to how Jesus realigns him. Jesus answered them in verse 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. In the mechanic world, we have special tools. Tiffany is here, my daughter, and my son-in-law are here, Dominic. They know my toolbox. They know that there is a specialty tool for almost everything. Or sometimes it seems like there is. There is a lot of specialty tools for alignments. And I have some of them. Not all of them, because there's too many. Jesus is going to use three special alignment tools. And you know what? They're really not that special. But he uses unique tools to realign John. The first one is John himself. You know, John had been the one that said, Behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus basically said, You know, John, just consider what you said, what you did. You know the answer to this question. You can answer this without any other help. Is Jesus the Messiah? Well, let me think. Let me ask you this. If you trusted Christ as your Savior, if you, if you hit a pothole and you get sideways and you're going, going in a bad place, all you need to do is go back to the beginning. Where was I at before I met Jesus? Where was I at? What, what was going on in my life when I met Jesus? Where did he meet me? What did he do in my life to help me understand the truth that he died for me? And help me accept that for myself. And where has he taken me since that day? All you got to do is look back on your life. 
And you can answer this question, is he the Christ or not? You, you have the tool, which is you. And if that's not good enough, Jesus used John's own disciples. He used other people. He said, you go, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen with your own ears, with your own eyes, your eyewitnesses. Here's what's amazing. You know, sometimes God has us go through potholes. He he has us go through challenges and heartaches, not necessarily for our own benefit, but for the benefit of other people. You know, many years ago, more years than I want to think, before Renee and I were even married, you know, I was a, a 20-year-old. At 19, I surrendered for ministry, and I said, okay, if this is what you want me to do for you, Jesus, okay, I, I, I surrender. So I quit my job, and I, for the first time ever, I went to a youth camp. Never had been to youth camp before. And now they're asking me to be a counselor at youth camp. That's probably not a good way to do it, Matt and Lauren. You want someone a little more seasoned. But they asked me to come. And so that week was transforming for me personally. Because now I was not only for the first time at camp, I was a counselor at camp for the very first time. Had a great time. God had spoken to me there. And in a month, I was going to go off to Bible college for the first time at 20. That last day, that Friday at camp, some of the high school boys and I thought, you know, hey, let's, let's, let's have a great time in the afternoon. We'll go play tag football. And so we were playing tag football, and that lasted for about 15 minutes. And we all started looking at each other saying, tag? That's for a bunch of girls. You know, we're going to play tackle. We're going to tackle. No, we didn't have any equipment. No, we were, we were going to play tackle football. And I was just a little bit older than some of these high school boys. And so that was all fun and games, and it was fun until one of the boys caught a pass, and he was running down the sideline, and I had tackled players, you know, half my life by that time. And so I knew exactly what to do. You hit them right at the knees, take their knees out, chop them out. Unfortunately, I forgot. I didn't have a helmet on, and his knee came up and hit me right in this cheekbone, and I saw the x-ray. I got up from the ground, and it was like, I can't close my mouth. It had shattered this cheekbone. It looked like busted glass. And if you were at the harvest dinner, you knew that I had plastic surgery. I went out of that hospital with a Dixie cup on the side of my head. I looked like a half a unicorn, you know. (laughs) And it was during that time that I had made, I guess, somehow an impact on a youth group on on another church. Not my church, but another church. And that, what I didn't know then, because I was laying in a hospital thinking, what is this all about? You know, God, what, what's going on here? Why am, you know, I know this was stupid, but it wasn't sinful. Why am I, you know, a month before I go off to Bible college, you know, going through this? It wasn't until the next year when I came back from college that I found out that that youth pastor said, you know, when you were in the hospital our youth group came and visited you, and they visited and visited, and this w- we weren't really connected to one another until you went in the hospital. We don't know when we're going through one of these potholes what God is doing in the lives of others. You know, and, and that's what's so amazing, that God uses other witnesses who are faithful, who say, you know what, I went through one of those things, And they don't even have to say it. Matter of fact, it's best when they don't say 
This is what God did. We can stand back and watch as they go through one of these potholes in life and they go through it faithfully trusting God. Well, if those two aren't enough, he uses one more specialty tool, the best specialty tool, Scripture. No, Jesus is going to quote uh, several passages from Isaiah, prophecies about the Messiah. He's going to use Old Testament passages, Scripture, to prove that he is the Messiah, to answer this question. Are you the Christ or should we look for another? He's going to, and maybe you can't answer that question for yourself. Maybe you don't have enough relationship with others to watch them, but we all have Scripture. Not only do, does Jesus quote and refer to several passages from Isaiah, everything that he mentions in these next few verses have transpired, are recorded in the first 10 chapters of Matthew. Every single thing that he's about to share with go tell John what you've heard and seen, and I'm going to tell you what those are, they've all happened in the first 10 chapters of Matthew. So what does he say? Verse number 4. or I'm sorry, verse 5. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. All that had happened in Jesus' ministry. All that had happened while John was in prison. And yet these eyewitnesses have seen it. You know, notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about politics. He doesn't say anything about the Messiah that he has been overthrowing the Roman government. He's not saying anything about American politics. He's not saying anything about prisoners. Those are other passages. The prisoner passage is others. But that's not what Jesus uses to validate his Messiahship. No, his message was about repentance, about forgiveness, about joy, about peace, about giving people a purpose in life that is unlike anything else. That's what his message is all about. And then Jesus ends this with verse 6. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You know, this is the problem. We sometimes get offended by what Jesus is doing in our lives, don't we? You know, sometimes we need a personal realignment. When we feel that God is not doing what we expect him to do in our lives. You know, as pastors... You know, Michael and I and Craig and, and several of you have heard people ask these questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? How can God, who is a good God, you say he's a good God, how can he allow bad things to happen to good people? Even more, how can God allow bad things to happen to God's people? That's the real question in church, isn't it? How can he allow bad things to happen to God's people? Here's another question. Why does God heal some people and let other people suffer, some even die? How can he allow that to happen? Have you ever asked that question? Why does God sometimes spare some people? You know, there are some people that you look at and they've trusted Christ and their life is just easy street. Why does God allow that in some people's lives? Don't you just hate those people? Well, maybe not hate. No, that's probably too strong a word. You wouldn't say that. But aren't you jealous of those people? You know what? It's like you pray and God just poof. 
You know, he's like the, you know, the amazing genie. He just gives you everything you ask for. How does that work for you? Why doesn't that work for me? Why does he allow some people, it seems like he just doesn't answer any of their prayers. They just go through one pain, one suffering, one challenge, one after another, after another, after another. And, and if you look at people like that, don't you wonder, what? What are you doing, God? You know, I could tell you all kinds of stories about people that have gone through those questions and they get mad at God. They get mad at God. They get angry with God. You know, and um, I could probably tell you stories about me and how that there's been things in my life that I've gotten angry and mad at God and questioned him. You know, if you're God, why am I going through this pain and suffering? Why did you do this in my life? You know, if that's not enough, we can always turn to the Psalms. We can read what David said. David got mad at God at times. He got pretty sassy, right? Here's the truth of it is. It's okay to get mad with God. You know, God, God doesn't love us any less when we get angry with him for not meeting our expectations. You know, God doesn't, you know, he's not so fickle that, you know, our little anger temper tantrum. You know, I think about my kids. You know, that one didn't do it. She was the perfect one, you know. You know, they don't get their way. They stomp their feet. I hate you. Now, they don't really mean that. You know, what they mean is, you don't give me what I want. We whine and we fuss. And sometimes we do that with God, don't we? Does God love us any less? No. He's sovereign. He's, he's, he's going to work through our little fit. But here's the truth of it is. It's not okay to stay mad with God. If you're staying mad with God, that turns into bitterness, that turns into resentment, and that's not okay. Matter of fact, the Bible calls that sin. You know, health and wealth pastors and preachers, you know, they're gutless. They don't tell you these things. You know, they tell you that, you know, you trust Jesus, you listen to me, you know, you follow my teaching, your life will be wonderful, you'll be healthy, wealthy, you know, and you can give me more money, and that's not true. That They're trying to realign you to a false gospel, to a false theology. The truth of the matter is, you read scripture, you read what Jesus says, and Jesus says, you trust me, you do what I say, and at times you'll suffer. But I will be there, and you can depend on me, and it's going to be okay. You know, we've heard somebody up here say, Quite a few times. Everything that we go through is allowed, permitted, or ordained ordained by God. We've heard that, right? From here, from a guy that usually speaks up here, he does say that, right? And that's true. God allows, permits, or ordains everything that happens in our life. And if we trusted him as our Savior, if we've made him Lord of our life, it will look different for each of us, but it'll be okay because he's allowed it, ordained it, or permitted it in our lives. Let me move on to my second point. You thought this message was going to be short because it only had two points, right? <laughs> Jesus wants to uniquely use you. Uniquely use you. And what I mean by that is it may look different. How did Jesus uniquely use John? Verse 7. As they went their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And I'm sure what's going on here is Jesus has now made this public statement for all to hear 
And people were wondering, wait a minute, John the Baptist needs an alignment? What is this all about? And he says this. What did you guys, what did you all, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Some of these people had been there when John was preaching in the wilderness. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a weed? A reed that was shaken by the wind? Was that what John was? Was John just a, a, a reed that just flopped with the breeze? Did he go with the culture of the day? Did he just, you know, was he just spineless? Every wind that blew one way, he went that way, and then the wind would blow another way. Was that John? No. Matter of fact, we know why John's in prison, because he did just the opposite. He wasn't spineless. He was committed to the truth of God and God's word. And that's what got him in prison, because he said to a governor, what you're doing is wrong, and it's going to bring in God's judgment. John, Jesus asked the same question again. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. Is that what John wore? Did you go out to see John in soft clothing? You know, like, a, like a, a, one of those um, royal court gestures. Is that what you went out to see? Was that John? No, I don't think so. John wore camel's hair, rough camel's hair. That wasn't anything like John. You know, and John is the one that chose to wear that. You know, he wasn't one of the puppets in the courthouse of the king. He was in prison when he was hearing these words. Then he asked it for the third time, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Now we get the affirmative answer. Yes, I tell you that even more than a prophet this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before my, your face, who will prepare your way before you. He quotes the Old Testament passage and says, John is the one who fulfilled this. Did you go out to see a prophet? I tell you, yes. He's not just a prophet. He is a unique prophet. He is the one prophet that prepared the way of the Messiah. That's what you went out to see. That's who he is. He was uniquely chosen he was uniquely used by God for this purpose and yet he ends up in prison you know Jesus asked John to really pay the ultimate price his life and it's very possible and it's most likely that he's not going to ask any of us here in Bartlett to give our lives for his for his kingdom but you know what today modern day more people are dying for their faith in Christ than any other time in history. And we often are sheltered by that. We think that, you know, we have uh, religious freedom, that we don't have to worry about someone barging in and arresting us or throwing us in jail for worshiping. But it's not like that everywhere in the world. Oh, no. People are giving the ultimate price for their, for their faith in Christ. You know, God has called each and every one of us in a unique purpose. He has got a unique plan for our lives, for his kingdom. The question is, are you going to align yourself to that purpose? You know, God has called each of his followers to be a witness for him. And I can tell you for certain 
that he is wanting you to be that witness right where you're at, in your job, in your work, in your school, in your community. He wants to use you right there where you're at, uniquely for him, something that only you can do. But someday he may call you to go somewhere else to do that. But right now, wherever you're at, he wants you to serve him and witness for him. You know, here's what's also pretty crazy. Not only is he giving you a unique calling, but he's giving you a unique um, opportunity to witness for him, a unique uh, sphere of influence. You know, I have people all the time, and, and I don't know how often Michael gets this as well, but often we get people coming to us, Pastor, you got to come and you got to talk to my neighbor, you got to talk to my friend, you got to come to my family member. They need to hear the gospel, they need to hear about Jesus. I don't have that sphere of influence. And I tell them, you know what? I would love to do that, but they don't know who I am. You know, I'm a total stranger. You have the relational clout with them. You're the one that's built into their life. They know you. They will trust you and your word far more than they will trust my word. For me, I'm a nobody. Michael's a nobody. If they don't know us, we don't have that influence over them. But you do. Will you use it? You know, often people look at other people's uh, purpose in life, their call in their ministry, and call in what God has asked them to do. And often people say, well, why can't I have his calling? Or why can't I do his ministry? And sometimes we look and we think one calling, one purpose is greater than another. And you know what? That's not true. Every purpose is unique. No one is going to be called to do what John the Baptist has done again. And what God has called you and uniquely wants to do in your life is unique for you and looks different for you than it does anyone else for anyone else in this room. But here's the truth. And like I said, these health and wealth preachers won't say this. You will suffer for your ministry. You will suffer if you are uniquely aligned to God's purpose in your life. But none of us will suffer like Job. Do you know the story of Job? You know Job had some friends and, and Job was suffering. He was going through quite a bit of heartache in life. He was hitting a lot of personal potholes. And he had some friends that wanted to tell him you know, how sinful he was and how that all these things that were happening to him were his own fault. If he would just align himself with God, then these problems weren't happening. And Job listened and listened and listened. And finally, in Job chapter 13, he's had enough. You ever get that way with some people? He's had enough. And he says this in Job chapter 13. Let me have silence. In other words, zip it. Quiet. Just listen to me for just one second. Let me say what I need to say. I will speak, he says. Let come to me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth? Why should I hurt myself with my words? Why should I put my life in my hand? Why should I take my life back from God? Why should I do that? That's what he's asking. Listen to this in verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Basically, Job says, Though I suffer uniquely, I will not curse my God and die. I will trust in him. And whatever may happen, I can trust in him. 
you know, we go through struggles in lives, we go through these personal potholes, and often we want to know why. And sometimes God doesn't tell us why. And that's where we just trust him. We don't know why, but we can trust him. You know, at times, each of us have to realign our hope with Jesus. And at times, we have to realign our purpose, our call to Jesus. I don't know what personal pothole you're going through right now. I know some of you are going through one of those heartaches. I know some of you have gone through some pretty big heartaches, some pretty big potholes. I know that. Maybe you're not going through anything right now, but I can tell you, they will come. They will come in your future because we've been promised that. How will you face those potholes? How will you face that question, are you really Messiah or not? Will you allow Jesus to realign you when that day happens? Will you allow him to align you to your unique purpose and call on your life? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that as hard as it is, we thank you for those challenges in our life, those things that happen to us that we often ask, God, what are you doing? And we know that those things drive us to our knees. They drive us to you. And those struggles, those potholes in our lives cause us to stay close to you. And we know that we can trust you when those things happen, that it's not because you don't love us, but it's because you love us greatly. Father, help us to be realigned to your hope, the hope that comes from knowing you and having that relationship with you. Help us to align ourselves to our unique purpose, the purpose that you've called each of us to be faithful to. In Jesus' name, amen.